Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Speaking with Water. I am completely honored to have Scott Sullivan here for the episode 10. Um, Scott is just an incredible dude. He has been a legendary surfer, professional snowboarder, lensman, musician, entrepreneur, and um, he grew up on the beaches of Rhode Island, uh, went on to surf um, the, the most epic waves in the world, uh, was a pro snowboarder in the 90s, uh, and today owns a killer pizza shop. Um, we find Scott on the North Shore of Oahu today. Um, Scott, welcome. Thank you in advance for your time, and um, I hope you're well. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great, Sean. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on here. Um, it's a beautiful day out here on the North Shore. Uh, it's a little bit smaller today. I've already been down to Sunset Beach and jumped in the water. Uh, came back, got ready for the podcast, said, honey, take the kids, go back down to Sunset. It's beautiful. <laughs> Get them in there, and uh, I'll meet you guys a little bit later. So, yeah, happy to be here. Epic, epic. So you've been out there for a few weeks. I've been watching the Pipe Masters on the TV. It's just been looking phenomenal, insane, amazing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you've seen lately? Yeah, so we arrived here in the beginning of January. Um, and leading up to it, people have been saying, oh, it's just, it's raining, it's cold, it's windy, it's, it's you know, you're going to be boned when you get here. And we got here and it turned into 80 degrees and pipeline just started firing. Um, it went on to the biggest swell benders, I think, that most people have seen in years. Um, the backdoor shootout started uh, right about when I got here, and that was absolutely phenomenal. They had incredible surf, uh, incredible talent. Um, the teams were just so stacked with, with great, great surfers. Uh, got to shoot that, got to shoot that out in the water from the beach, saw some amazing stuff with the men, saw some amazing stuff with the women, um, and that kind of kicked off the trip. Um, it's been a month I've been here so far and it just, it goes by so quick. It just hasn't stopped, you know, um, when I'm out here, it's just go, go, go. Uh, we're either, if, if the surf's pumping, then I'm shooting, trying to shoot down a pipe or YMA or places like that. I'm trying to surf myself. I'm trying to get, keep my kids in the water, uh, trying to just really maximize the, the program here. Um, I try to get up every day um, just at daybreak and get out there and stay out there all day long, <laughs> come back home, crack a beer, and then fall asleep, you know, so really try to make the most of it. Yeah, the, the North Shore lifestyle, I've been out there a number of times myself, it's just you go, you, you leave, and you just cannot wait to get back to it, and uh, I, I know the people who do live there, they, they just... Uh, they're, they're living the dream constantly. Um, so you, uh, I want to get a little deeper with uh, your current lifestyle and, and how you operate and everything, but let's, um, let's go back a little bit. I want to turn back the clock and I'd like to, to know a little bit about your, um, your, uh, your beginnings. Where, where have you been um, and, and how did uh, specifically your growing up in Rhode Island um, shape who you are today? Um. So I grew up in a pretty traditional East Coast family, uh, Catholic, Republican, you know, of the kind of old mindset. Um, and I just in school, there, there kind of wasn't, I, I, don't, I don't really know how to say it, but it's uh, sometimes there's limited options of what you can do and what you can dream, <laughs> you know, growing back in those kind of environments. Uh, 
And I really feel like surfing was something that really kind of saved my life and set me on, um, on the path that, I, that I've been on. Um, I started surfing, I got my first board when I was nine years old, um, but I, you know, at the beaches, um, obviously that's a summer thing because the winters are so darn cold. Um, uh, winters, we were, uh, we were a ski family, which for me that then became snowboarding when snowboarding became um, a viable thing. Uh, and I, you know, I grew up um, with the school thing. I was never really that great at school. Um, you know, I did some sports. Um, I kind of struggled with grades and stuff, but it wasn't through lack of trying. It was just kind of my mind, the way my mind works doesn't really fall into that, you know, focus on the academic kind of thing. So I, that kind of put me at odds with some of the system out there. So I did struggle for years trying to find out where I fit in, um, you know, what was wrong with me, why I couldn't, you know, focus in school. Um, later on, you know, it turned out, uh, you know, I had uh, ADHD, um, which I've learned to use to my advantage <laughs> these, these days. Um, but, you know, at a young age, uh, for me, just being out there and active and surfing and skiing and snowboarding, it's what I loved to do. Um, and it's kind of where my friends came from. And I kind of had forged my path through that. Um, and, you know, it was, it was tough uh, back then. And it was in the 80s. People didn't really understand that. It, it, it isn't what it is these days as an accepted part of our culture. Um, you know, the board culture was still growing. Um, it's still pretty underground, um, you know, you know a universe apart from what it is today. Um, now you can kind of say, hey, I'm in the surf industry, snow industry, and it's a pretty accepted thing, and people are pretty excited about it. I think a lot of people really relish that and want to live that lifestyle. But for me growing up, um, I really had to kind of fight tooth and nail for that to um, develop that lifestyle. And it really wasn't until later when I was in my late teens, early 20s, that I really began to find um, the you know, the friend set and, and the support system that really kind of brought me along in that. Let, let's stick a little bit on, on the, um, the younger part with the uh, discovering of the ADHD, because personally, I can relate to that. Um, I, I was diagnosed with a learning disability and ADHD myself in the 90s. And at that time, they, they had just uh, discovered what that was. And um, you, you touched upon you were in the 80s before they even knew what to do. So you're, you're kind of um, in, this, in this realm of you don't really know why it is that you have a hard time paying attention. But you also didn't know that that was almost like a fundamental reason why you were um, to become such and, and you were at the time a creative person, I'm sure. So, um, you know, you look back on the history of, of people who have had learning disabilities, you know, you have your Albert Einsteins and uh, today some of the most well-known entrepreneurs uh, have ADHD and, and learning disabilities. Um, so uh, with, with that said, going, going forward, you, um, you, ventured into into punk rock I, I i read when what what point did that come into um your realm of being and, and can you kind of give us a, a time because um when when i was growing up in in the 90s in washington dc i found the punk rock scene there to be just 
like a lifeblood of, of coolness yeah. and yep. just a vibration that gave such um, awareness to um, what I was feeling inside and then an outlet to it that was positive. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm going to step over here and shut the door because they got the blower going outside. I'll be right back. No worries. All right, great. Um, so yeah, so that's, I mean, those are great, great points that you're making. Um, you know, and it was true back in the eighties when I was growing up, ADD, ADHD, they weren't even really things that, that people knew about, you know, they first started to discover them. And then that's when they were trying to put, you know, kids on medications for that, which luckily, I mean, I had, the, they tried a couple little times, but I was never, I never went for it. And I, I just never really went that route of going through the medications for that. Um, it was, it was frustrating. And I can, um, you know, understanding from like, say a parental perspective or, you know, teachers and stuff at that time, which they don't, they don't know the stuff either, you know, but you know, is they just can't get ahead and they can't be taught the same way and they can't learn the same way. Um, except, but then they have these exceptional abilities. I, I actually kind of believe that like the ADD thing is actually a gift. And I just think you have to, it has to be nurtured and you have to learn how to use it. And the people around you have to learn how to, to work with that. Um, you know, it comes with highs and lows and you have to uh, know when to use the highs and then when to step back and when to take a break. Um, you know, because a lot of times that's coupled with depression and stuff and a misunderstanding of, of things and who we are and what's wrong with me and this and that. Um, but I just think that the more we're um, learning about it, really, I think some of the great figures um, of our society and culture have, um, you know, have had that, um, have had, you know, learning disabilities. Of, I don't even want to call them learning disabilities, you know, because they're kind of learning abilities in some ways. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I, I think we're not alone uh, with that, you know, so it just takes, you just have to have um, a support system around you and people that understand that and what makes you different. Um, you know, I never, you know, being an artist from where I came from wasn't, a, wasn't an option. That, that wasn't a thing you could really do, you know, um, it's even taken me most of my life to just say, hey, you know what, I am pretty artistic. Um, I thrive in that, you know, I thrive in taking the time to visualize things in my head and, and have ideas and go after them and slap paint up around on things and bring colors and light and working with all that stuff. Um, you know, at this point in my life now, I'm like, I realize I, I am an artist, um, but I'm also, I've been lucky enough to stick to and follow my passions that I've had for, for most of my life. And um, having those passions is something that is an integral part of success for me. Um, I, I feel like without my passions that I kind of don't really have, you know, a guiding light to follow. Um, and lucky for me, surfing and snowboarding and music have all been huge things um, that have guided me through that. Um, so, you go, so you mentioned the punk rock thing. 
Um, and punk rock was huge. Yeah, like when, when I look back, you know, so I'm growing up, I'm a teenager in the mid eighties and I'm in New England and we have all that influence from bands like Minor Threat, um, you know, the whole discord movement, the Bad Brains, the New York scene. Um, we had an incredible, incredible scene up in the Northeast, you know, and then you had the West Coast scene with the bands like Descendants and Seven Seconds and Misfits and those guys. But I got chills right now. I got chills talking. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and it's like and and those. I think there was a lot of kids in that scene that were dealing with the same kind of stuff. And it just, you know, there were some great people like Ian McKay uh that just led these movements um and showed it was the diy thing first of all you know and that has become like the, the diy thing that spawned out of hardcore and punk rock became like a full-on life mantra for me um and watching those guys start their own record labels start their own shows their own zines all that stuff is phenomenal um you know and regionally we had great bands with verbal assault uh from newport rhode island which was incredibly influential with me pete kramiak the guitar player um i just i tried to like embody everything that he did as a guitar player you know so and these were just kids that were like a few years older than i was at the time but being able to go to uh, a show on sunday afternoon at 2 p.m an all-ages show at like the rocket in providence um and just blend with all these kids um was really you know, empowering thing, you know, and through that you mix the skateboard kids, the surf kids, the punk rock kids, you know, um, and then even within that there was like skinheads, you know, and then like the, the hippies and, and it was like a real melting pot of, of, of people. Um, as time has gone on, um, I just look and just, I, I feel incredibly fortunate to have grown up in that period because I think, think um, the ideals and a lot of things have kind of gotten co-opted and watered down over the years. Um, you know, not in a bad way, just kind of in a natural You know, uh, at that time, we were saying if somebody had a mohawk walking across the street, um, there was like shock factor that, you know, people would be flipping off, you know, as you're crossing the street and just like it made people uncomfortable. Um, now that's such a part of our society. Oh, you, you look at a, a Disney movie, like, I don't know if you've seen Corella, the, oh, yeah. watching it with my kids and punk rock, then the neighbor kids are coming out with Mohawks, you know, so it's really called mainstream. It, it really has, you know, and, and I think that there's um, not to take anything away from like the punk style uh, and the aesthetic, which I think is great, but um as I kind of got older, I started to realize that punk rock was more than just what you look like or what you listen to. It really was an attitude and it's how you fit in and forged your path through, uh, through our world, through society. Um, and you don't have to be, have nose rings and tattoos and listen to, you know, just grinding hardcore music all day long. It, you can, you can, you can live that other ways. Um, Joe Strummer from The Clash is a huge influence on me. Um, I like to say that he's my boss, you know, and I kind of just look to Joe and, you know, Joe's ethic of how he did things and the conviction with which he spoke, um, you know, and his music styles changed with The Clash, like, radically, you know, and they were, was one of the great things about The Clash with their, their reggae influences and their soul influences and, 
you know, their rock and roll influences, all of it. And they melded it all into one. And as Joe got older, before he passed away, he was working with the Mescaleros and, uh, and the albums were phenomenal. They, they embodied all this world beat and all this stuff. And I remember reading some stuff on, uh, on some forums and people just ripping them apart, just being like, this isn't punk rock. Well, you know, it's like, oh, you guys are so missing the point. Like punk isn't this sound or this or that. It punks in here. And it's just how you approach life and how you treat people and how you make it all work for you. And at the root of that is the, the DIY, the do it yourself. Um, and that is just kind of how I've tried to live my life. Um, I, there's a slogan that I, that I, a mantra that I live by and it's make it happen. And we, you just have to make it happen. Um, you, you know, hard work is integral. <laughs> you have to work hard at what you want to do you, and you have to maintain a vision and focus to achieve that because people will try to tear you down from that all the time. Um, there's a lot of negative people out there that don't want to see you succeed for some reason or another. And people get caught up in what everybody else is doing. But it's just, at the end of the day, it just comes down to what you do and how true you are to yourself and how you affect other people um, during your time on this planet. So, you're at this stage in your life before you've done all the great things. You're you're uh, a late adolescence. It's before you've made it to the Rockies. It, uh, it sounds like the punk rock kind of gave you that fuel to get out of your your uh, your area of Rhode Island and and make it. What? what excuse me. I have a, a junior here. Um, what were the um, the precipices that that led you to be like, all right, I'm out of here. Um, this is where I'm going. Um, uh, give me give me some factors and a, a, a case in point okay so um during five years of high school i went to four different schools uh they just couldn't deal with me you know and i wasn't a bad kid i wasn't into drugs i wasn't drinking I surfed i skated i like music and i just didn't fit but i just went from one school to the other uh they some Catholic schools, all that. I ended up in um, in a year-round uh, juvie kind of school um, out in Western Massachusetts, out in the Berkshires. It was called DeSisto School, um, and it was just year-round. And you had to go through there and go through all these therapeutic levels to like level one, level two, level three, and you would have the the staff and your peers, everybody kind of vote to like get you to the next level. Um, I ended up running away several times from there and going living on the road, which was, was kind of a thing people were doing. You would just kind of hit a wall in there and kind of just get more crazy than, you know, they thought you were. And then I'd run away. Um, I eventually ran away one too many times and um, I had been living in Rhode Island, sleeping out in the woods. It was snowing, like still surfing, trying to work at Burger King, stuff uh, out of California. My parents found out they had picked up and I was put in a actually a, a actual mental hospital out in Chicago. Uh, and that was at the end of my 17th year. And I spent three and a half months on the third floor of this hospital on Lakeshore Drive uh, with other kids that were kind of in the same situation as me. Some were, some of them were actually kind of pretty crazy. Um, 
And I came away from the whole thing feeling like I had just learned how to manipulate people to, to say what they wanted to hear to get out. So um, I got out of there and I went back to, to the DeSisto school. Um, I agreed to go back to finish out the year there. I'd worked with them to develop a skateboarding program. Uh, we worked with some builders and we built this incredible skateboard ramp, like a, like a 40 foot wide, eight foot tall, half pipe, beautiful. Um, we finished it and we got in trouble at school, not me, some of the other kids too. And uh, they took it away from us. And then at that point I was 18 and I just said, screw it, I'm, I'm leaving. And I just kind of went on my own, um, lived on my own for, like the next six months and then I worked with my parents came home and I finished my final year of high school in Rhode Island and um, at that point it was quite strange I was like you know I felt like I had lived a pretty crazy life up to that point um, and my senior year of high school it still wasn't an academic thing really I, but I was just my experiences had been um, pretty pretty vast um, at that point, and I made it through that, and uh, I just kind of started diving more into the snow and the surf. Um, you know, case in point, I had actually been taken away from the hardest thing going to those schools and the just the juvie schools and stuff was that I couldn't surf. They, I got taken away from all my friends and just put out there in the middle of nowhere. Um, so that sucked. <laughs> you know, and that was a really hard thing. I developed a lot of resentment um based around that um and it really stemmed from people not understanding how to work with me you know like i said i wasn't a bad kid you know i, I wasn't i wasn't violent i wasn't into drugs or anything i just uh wanted to live did you life. know yourself at this point like did you did you know you were good it just other people didn't know how how you how to how to be with you no i didn't I, I didn't. So, so it was pretty hard. Um, you know, so I had, I had real confidence issues, um, that followed me probably still follow me to this day, <laughs> self-confidence. Um, I didn't understand that. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't, I just thought I was broken, you know, and I wasn't fitting in, you know, and I, I had my small group of friends, but everybody else, I was pretty, freaking resentful of you know and that's where punk rock again came in and showed us a light and and a safe place for to you know to, to be with like-minded people you know and and for for me that's probably the first inclination that finding like-minded people following the same passions as you do in your life is the key to success you know and it doesn't even have to be financial success it's just but but surrounding yourself with the people that love what you love is is so important Great advice. Yeah. Uh, then explain to me the bridge that took you into such a, a fundamentally um, powerful point in snowboard history. Um, it, 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 you're, you're coming from a um, traumatic, sounds like experience. Um, you then move into just what um, from the outside in seems like, you know, if you had a time machine to go back to one period, of snowboarding, it would probably be that that the the nineties before um, the the mountains uh, were opened up to snowboarders. You know, you probably had to hike around a lot of uh, different uh, 
out of bounds locations and saw just amazing things. Um, how, how did you get from, from this one spot that was so negative to this other spot that was so positive? So, yeah, so, you know, I grew up, like you're saying, golf courses, you know, like little hills, Rhode Island's pretty flat, but anything that had a pitch to it, we would try to ride. Um, Yagu Valley was a, was a, that was kind of the go-to spot. I would go up to Vermont, ride like that. And it was, it was like you had to pass a test to ride some spots, other spots you couldn't ride. Uh, Stratton up in Vermont was great. Burton was right, right there. They kind of really created the program uh, happening even back then. Um, so there were some great things happening. Uh, snowboarding really, uh, um, I really got infected by the whole vibe with snowboarding. And I decided uh, to move out to, uh, out to Colorado. Um, and that was a really kind of a hard decision for me because uh, I did love the ocean and I, and I love surfing, but I just said, I just remember uh, sitting with myself one time going, you know, I should just try something. I should move away. I should just go for it. I should just, you know, so I moved to Colorado. I had a friend out there that already went to school out there. And um, so I landed in Boulder in the early 90s. And I just landed in such an incredibly vibrant scene. Um, Justin Hosseneck, who later founded Absinthe Films, was my roommate. Um, the whole crew up in Summit County with guys like Dale Rayburg and uh, Rowan Rogers, Nate Cole, um, Twist Clothing, Wave Rave. Um, there was, you know, there was just so much happening out there. And it was all new and everybody was just riding this wave of excitement with snowboarding. So I just took the leap. Um, you know, I just got out of my comfort zone, um, which is, I've kind of gone and done that several times in my life. I just say, all right, you know, when I look back at my obituary <laughs> at the end of verse, what do I want this story to be, you know? And I just don't want to be complacent and stuck in the same thing. And I will continue to do this for the rest of my life, most likely, you know, leap, you know, take some blind leaps of faith out there, but it just put me in an amazing, uh, amazing environment with all of those people. Um, and those friendships were, were forged in the mountains, in the snow, in those early days, which we're talking uh, probably 90 through 93 was my Colorado time. Um, and then from there, I moved up to Utah, to Snowbird. Um, and then I was riding professionally as a snowboarder from like 93 to probably 98. I blew my knee out and I had to have ACL surgery. So that kind of uh, put a little damper on that side of things. But um, it was, what had happened was because we were this young, pretty radical group of people growing up with this thing, that we all were so passionate about and wanted to be involved in everybody just started getting involved people started making clothing companies hey hey we'll make our own clothing company hey we'll make we'll make a magazine hey we'll, we'll we'll make movies you know and this is once again the diy ethic um and it was coming out we were punks you know snowboarders were punks at that point <laughs> and uh and those people became my network for where my launch pad was into, uh, into snowboarding. Um, Justin Hostenek from Absinthe was a huge, you know, figure for me, bringing me under his wing. And 
you know, his vision for what snowboarding was, you know, getting the best riders in the best conditions in the world, right? Settling for nothing less. Um, it brought me into this whole group of European crew and the North Americans, you know, it was, uh, it was phenomenal. And that's kind of been my network um, from that point on, you know, that led to me being a senior photographer at Snowboarder Magazine. Um, I was staff photographer at Volcom for the snow team. Um, I work with countless other companies. I've traveled the world going to contests, you know, in places like Japan and Germany and Austria and Australia. Like I got to go do all this amazing stuff under that umbrella of snowboarding. And I'm incredibly grateful for it. Um, the, there was so much progression happening at that time through the nineties, as soon as guys started spinning stuff sideways and off access, you know, misty flips and rodeos. It was just game on. It went from this kind of like, kind of clunky, you know, just a little bit spastic, you know, style into just like some heavy, heavy progression. And once that uh, kicked in, um, it just, for the next probably seven, eight years, just absolutely went batshit. Um, our crew that I ended up landing with, like I said, the absinthe crew, you know, I'm riding with guys like this unknown kid, Travis Rice, you know, who just shows up in our crew one day. Our friend Rich Goodwin was like, Jackson, he's really good, you know. Um, Nicholas Mueller, you know, like a 16 year old kid from Switzerland that can't even speak English. Uh, Wolfgang Nivell, who's become one of my very, very best friends, you know, through the whole path of my life. Um, all of that crew was pushing things so hard um, and it went from the parks uh, and the mountains to just hiking off, you know, side road backcountry stuff to then us being in Alaska. And we had this idea of, hey, we're taking like freestyle riding to the big mountains, to the Alaskan terrain. Um, you know, and we had Johan Olofsson who kind of really lit a fire under things in TB5. Uh, and I think that just became what we're after. We're gonna take, you know, switchback sevens onto mid-face up in Alaska. And we're gonna film it from the helicopter with the doors off and we're just gonna blow minds. And it, it kind of happened. And I think when, uh, when society at large embraces what a group like that is doing and is excited about it then it gives the core group that's actually performing like that that much more energy to do it um and to do it on a high level um i like to think of the beatles uh in this kind of setting where the beatles were just a band but everybody loved them and told them how great they were but like if the beatles didn't have that that stamp of approval from the whole world like they did, like what would they have created? You know, but with the whole world just telling them how great they were and how everybody's just freaking out over them, you know, they, they come to embody that as well. And then I think that, that support from everybody pushes them to a whole nother level. And I think in a small way, we were kind of going through that in, with Absinthe Films in, um, and snowboarding in general in that period through late 90s through 2005 or 2006 like 
the acceleration of the progression was just going nuts and it was exciting. And the guys that were doing it, they were rock stars. You know, you go to Tokyo Dome with 50,000 people screaming, you know, or the Olympic Stadium in Munich for the Aaron Style. It was a huge thing. And it, uh, it's changed. You know, it, it doesn't, it's not like that anymore. It's still fantastic, but it's just, it's a different thing now. Um, we were riding a zeitgeist. Um, and that was a cultural zeitgeist with, with the board sports, with the music. They were cross-pollinating each other. Um, there's absolutely no denying that the videos that came out with uh, Surf, Skate, and Snow movies in the 90s with bands like Pennywise, Bad Religion, um, Nirvana, NoFX, Green Day, they, they, they lifted each other up, you know? And of course, the music then becomes this amazing thing that's now like part of the, the you know the historical classic music dialogue you know with those bands absolutely i i vividly remember being a 13 year old in 1995 uh putting in the vhs cassette of the the latest snowboard movie you might have even created and and just getting so much inspiration on so many different levels you know i i not being um at the beach wanted to be at the beach but the mountains were close by and there's some hills by my house so when it snowed i could get a taste of all that um let's let's stick on the the uh this level of inspiration and and in the fact that when you're out there in this time uh creating um this content you you don't you did not have anything else to look look upon as a, a reference point or to your you know you're creating your own inspiration by where you are so it's really super original art um can you kind of uh, uh let us into your head a little bit at that at that um at, from that time as far as what your creative process was um did you have one or did you just wing it um how, how did that go um in the present moment then um it was definitely part of a support system um i like i said i still lack self-confidence in me kind of in what i did you know like i would often have to pinch myself like how did i get here with these guys i don't deserve to be here you know um luckily i find out like a lot of people feel like that you know and that's why having the you know the group it's like insular so it, it can really help out but you know, um, I'll always mention Justin Hosnick. Um, Justin had conviction and vision for things, and I was just—I was just in awe of how he, he pursued his artistic vision. Um, it just—he didn't let the money stop him. He would find the money to do things. He would shoot things on film. Uh, beautiful, beautiful angles. Working super hard. Um, we, uh, we, Justin and I agree on a certain thing. We really loved. Uh, the aesthetic beauty of things. We love the really good light. We love the curves of the of, of the earth and the mountains and the ocean. Um, and my one thing that my directed that I've always had is that um, I like to see people um, integrating with what nature has to offer and showing where, you know, like maximizing that potential of the two elements coming together, humanity and and nature together. Um, you know, there's some people that are just like, where it's like porn style, it's like action, 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 action. And it's like showcasing the athlete and it's just about the athlete, right? And how good they are and how they can overpower uh, the natural terrain or this or that. And um, 
the way I see things is trying, how can you use nature as a canvas to draw your lines um, with a, while maintaining immense respect for that nature um, and finding ways to make that happen. You know, getting up early for the incredible golden light, staying out till the very, very end <laughs> with the golden light. Um, you know, looking at features in, in the terrain and just trying to visualize how you can, you know, use that terrain in a fresh, um, in a fresh way that people that we haven't seen before. Um, and I just think when you put the best athletes, you know, in the best terrain like that, um, and you just let them kind of do their thing, um, you end up with an incredible, uh, product that is bigger than the, the individual parts. Um, and I still adhere to that now. Um, lighting for me is, is everything, you know? Um, there is no bad light. <laughs> There's some harsh light, you know, but you find ways to make it work. You know, maybe you switch over to black and white and you, and you start composing things based off of contrast and stuff. Um, you know, but I still, uh, I still believe that I love just like Mother Nature is the greatest artist, and 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 I think it's a pure gift for us as humans to be able to take our passion and integrate with that. So I think I've kind of stuck with that um, as my for my artistic drive. Um, I also at the at the root of it, I consider myself a photojournalist. Um, I'm somebody that can get to those places that a lot of people can't get to and document that. Um, and that's changed over the last decade with phones and with Instagram because everybody has that camera with them. Um, and that's kind of been a struggle for me to adapt to that where like I was a photojournalist, you know, I was going these places, but now it's like, the riders and the athletes and everybody else around everybody has a camera all the time so you have to find a new way to uh to make that work for you you know um under those confines um but let me jump in real quick on on that point and what you what you led up to that point uh so a lot of of what i've seen from your work is the very you know artistic you're pulled back from the situation, but you allow everything between you and the subject to, to gather a, um, a mirage of beauty. Um, case in point, the, the picture I, I um, saw most recently you took of uh, Mason Barnes um, at that outer reef. From a distance, you're on a cliff. The wave looks, looks big but you don't realize how big it is. I mean, I saw the Instagram uh, video, that wave was all of a hundred feet, possibly he paddled into, I mean, the, the face of it. Um, it, it, was, it was gnarly. The picture you took though, gave it this like calm essence. And it wasn't until you zoomed in on, on the matter 
face, you know, when you, when you really got into it, that you realized how intense that was. A couple other ones I really um, enjoyed where you're pulled back um, mountain shots with a lot of texture of the hills. Then you have your, your little tiny people enjoying it. You know, that draws a, a lot of energy in, into my soul when I see something like that. And then, you know, following up now to your point, as far as people with their phones and whatnot, yeah, they can have a, a mechanical device with them, but they don't have that, um, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of, of uh, background work to then pull out a shot like that. So I just want to give you a, a big up in respect um, on, on that matter. For those listening, um, I, I, uh, the, down below, I will uh, post your, your Instagram feed for everyone to, to check out, but um, much respect there. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, and it, it, and sometimes you second guess yourself <laughs> all the all, time. All, all artists do, don't, don't, don't we? We, uh, yeah. we, need, we need others to say that whatever, but again, it's us who decide. As Andy Warhol said, you know, you, you're the decider. And if you put a mark on this uh, page here and call it done, well, that's done. And um, so it goes too with the photography, I believe. It does, you know, and, and like I said, I like seeing humans interact with nature. And that's why I will do the pulled back stuff a lot of times, you know, um, you know, as far as the athletes go, um, there's always going to be somebody better. Somebody else is going to come along. You're going to have your time and maybe you're the best, but someday you won't be. And there's really nothing I hate more than an arrogant prick that thinks that they are the shit and they're better than all of it. And it's all about them because time's just going to pass, dude. And you're just, you're just going to become somebody else. Um, it's having that humbleness, uh, and the respect for the terrain, whether it's the ocean or the mountains or whatever. Um, those are the riders and the surfers that I identify with personally. Um, yes, I like some of the arrogant burning hot rock stars and what they do, but I don't want to be them. You know, I, they, you know, their, their burnout is going to be a lot more painful when their ego comes crashing down. Um, I really like the ones that are calm and that are, that burn bright, but burn evenly and slow. Um, you know, it's same with music, you know, it's like, you know, it is, everybody loves the rock stars, <laughs> you know, there's, they're colorful, you know, but it's, uh, but there's, but it really is just an interaction and we're just incredibly fortunate and lucky to be able to experience these things that we do on the level that we do them. I mean, surfing is so mind blowing. You know, you're, you're looking at like, like living waves of energy passing through this liquid medium that is the ocean. And then they hit the shoreline and then they, they've, you know, they've reached the end of their life cycle, but then we get to ride them. <laughs> It's just like, it is, it's not to get like cosmic and psychedelic, but it really is mind blowing. And I was telling this to my daughter the other day, we were up on the mountainside across some pipeline, this building swelled, it was during the pipe masters. And we're just watching corduroy lines come in from all, from every direction, whales jumping, all kinds of stuff going on. And I said to her, I said, I said, look, these waves that we see right here, these are the same things as sound waves and all these energy waves that go on around us all day long in the world uh but we can't see them we can't see sound waves but 
you can look at the ocean and see cleanly groomed long interval swell. And if you were to translate that to music, that would be this really nice balanced kind of rhythmic uh, music coming at you. Whereas if you take like a choppy wind swell and it's stormy and it's just all this cross phasing and stuff, um, you can relate that to sound where if you're in a, a shitty room and there's just sound waves bouncing everywhere, it creates all this phase and just chaos, you know, even certain kinds of music, which are designed like that. And though, and if you were to, if you were to make it so you could see the sound waves, they'd look like a choppy ocean, right? And the fact that we can see the waves in the ocean, feel them coming, ride them, duck up, get under inside them in the barrel, <laughs> it's just, it, it'll never cease to amaze me for as long as I live, like to for actually how amazing this, planet that we live on is and as surfers what we get to do um you know and transferring that over to snow it's different it's it's the systems come in and they dump all the they have all the kinetic energy in there with the storm but then they dump it and then they canvas the earth and they highlight you know the the turtle um, most of the time we're riding a static environment. Um, you do get your situations where if you pop off a slough or avalanche, all of a sudden it's coming after you, you know, and it's chasing you. And then you've activated again by interacting with it. Um, but there's just, you know, for me, just being out in those kind of elements is, is really what it's all about. You know, I, I hope to do it for the rest of my life. <laughs> I, I love what you just did there comparing um, a clean powder day to a clean surfing day and how the two just mingle aesthetically together so perfectly, uh, beautifully said. Uh, I have so many questions for you. I know we're not going to be able to get to them. So I want to, I want to kind of nail down these, these few that, um, that I kind of think are most important. Um, when, when you go to, um, you've been all over the world surfing and shooting um, amazing breaks. Uh, specifically now you're at Pipeline and um, I've seen your work most recently. You're, you're in the channel, uh, you're, you're in, in the action at um, one of the most intense surf spots in the world um, for, for the environment and for the amount of people involved in, in the situation, surfers, photographers. Um, can you kind of speak to, uh, to, to those who haven't had this experience and, um, and kind of paint the picture as to what, what that's like from rolling up on the beach to surveying the ocean to deciding where it is you were going to to enter um, because all, all of those decisions could either um, maximize a session to getting epic material or to to death you know a lot of photographers have died at pipe so um, can you kind of uh, um, bring bring that to our to our mental space so this came from a lifetime of me shooting surfing um, you know, I was 16 when I had my first photo published in Surfer Magazine. Um, and then I swam, I was shooting water photos pretty much almost all my life. Um, but I didn't touch pipeline for years, years and years. So you would go to Hawaii and not touch pipeline? Yeah, I'd shoot it from the land. It took me, it took me a bit. You know, there's a lot of legend and lore. And uh, I mean, pipeline's just, it's an entity in its own, you know, and um, I have an immense amount of respect for it. I have an immense amount of respect for those of me that came before me 
and have shot it um and the ones that do it now on a on a high level also for the surfers that do it um you know it's good to be scared of it i think so um i eventually worked my way up to it but i would spend i'd be out here for a year sh shooting and i would just watch the currents I would watch where people jumped in, how far down the beach they got sucked, you know, where they, how they were trying to come in, um, where the waves are breaking, what the swells were doing, you know, if there's some north in the swell, it's pinching on the end and the photographers are getting smoked. If it's a nice clean west swell, then it can be a little bit more friendly and easier to get out. Um, I mean, there's times when you can't even get out, you know, you jump in like 300 feet up the beach and then you get sucked all the way past the Volcom house and then down towards the lifeguard tower and gums. And then you just get your ass beat. And, and even at times pushed back to the beach, you know? So it's really important to uh, a wave like that. And a lot of the other heavier waves of consequence to respect what the ocean is doing. Cause I mean, man, you can get in trouble. You can just, you can get in trouble pretty damn quick. Um, so I really kind of studied it as much as I could. There's, and I, I do it now. Um, you know, I, I watch it. You know, I, I rarely just run up there in the morning and go out. I stop and watch and I kind of see what's going on. I see what the sets are doing. Um, and then when I'm feeling good about it, I go out. You know, um, I, I'm out in way bigger stuff than I probably ever thought I would be out there. But, you know, um, once I'm out there, it's it's actually quite comfortable. Um, not being tethered to a surfboard is nice, and having the flippers on, uh, I can get around pretty easy. I still get bounced off the bottom um, here and there. Um, I wear a helmet, like a lot of us out there. Um, you have to navigate the currents. Some days the current's pulling you into the pit. Other days it's pulling you away from there. Um, I, I personally really have to focus and pay attention when I'm out there not just to get the shot that I want, but to not get put in, pulled into a bad spot. Um, you know, and then you're out there, you're navigating other kinds of 75 surfers, you know, running over your head almost, you know, um, on some days there's like 20 photographers out there, you know, and what do you want? What image do you want to get? You know, um, you can put yourself further outside and try to get shots off the peak. Um, you can end up with a lot of uh, people's heads in the way. Obviously, as photographers, we try to have a clean shot where we're getting a wave and server, and not a bunch of other people there. So um, sometimes that means me going and hanging on the inside, you know, and going under more waves so that I can kind of get a cleaner shot without people in there. Um, the great thing these days, which there's a nice camaraderie of the photographers out in the water at Pipe. Um, uh, to me, it seems that anybody that's out there shooting uh, these days does it because they love it, because it's their passion. Nobody's making a lot of money. You know, there might be a couple of guys that are that are really, you know, surviving off of that. But all in all, people are out there because they love it, you know. And I see guys like Brian Bielman, who's been shooting since the 70s, and he'll be out there still. And, and he loves it. He's like a kid, you know, all the way down to like, the new 15 year old kid that's swimming out to shoot um so i've i think feel like that's something that's changed in this era of digital media and where photos don't really have the value like they used to do so people aren't competitive like oh you're 
you're in my spot. I'm getting the shot. I'm shooting this dude. And that tension that used to be there, I think, is more just like you're among other people that are like-minded that are willing to swim out there and be out there and capture that uh, capture that vision that they have of pipeline and witness it from that close. Um, so there's some great, great people out there and, and it is a, it's a pretty supportive environment. Um, I just don't, you know, there's very few people that really guard their secrets like, like they used to do. So, um, but it's, you know, it's a really, it's a, there's a lot of mutual respect among people because it still is uh, a pretty heavy thing to be out there. Um, and at some point you're going to pay the price, <laughs> you know, you can go for five days and just, you know, be just swimming around out there and everything's great, but you're going to get hit out there for sure. So it's not the kind of place you rush out to. It's not for everybody. Um, I come from a lifetime of being in the, in the water and, uh, I, and I try to apply everything that I have when I'm out there. Um, anybody that is, wants to get into that kind of thing, it's just spend time in the water at your local spots with your with your friends that surf you know shooting on smaller scale stuff um and work out your stuff work out your equipment um and just know your limits um don't you don't you don't have to do anything you, you like i mean and that goes for all of this subject matter that we deal with right you got to work within your comfort level and everybody's comfort level is different um and there's no nothing is worth putting yourself, you know, at risk for death uh, if you can't handle it. You know, it's just you gotta like follow your intuition and your gut. And I mean, there's definitely days when I'm just like I'm not swimming out there. You know, I I can see how this is gonna go, and I'm gonna get pounded, and I'm gonna get dragged down there through the sandbar, you know, or this or that, and the currents are wrong or the angles wrong. Um, so you just gotta trust yourself and trust your intuition and that and work your way up to it and patience is is so important patience is important in life in general you know especially for spazzes like me that are adhd and i'm just like ah, i want to do everything you know when i get when my when i start hitting that upper spectrum i just like want to everything all at once but you know i gotta kind of tamper that down sometimes <laughs> You're a, you're a businessman. You, you understand money and you've, you've lived in the world a long time. How, how, how do you view the current state of photo journal, journalism uh, in the surfing and snowboarding world today? And for young people who might want to view that as a career, how, um, what, what is your advice and what would you say um, to, to the, the financial side of things and making it a job? um don't get into it for the money <laughs> you know you can end up making money at it but you got to do it because you love it um and then once you want to do it for money then you gotta really your passion and like mingling the business and the money side of things with your art and your passion can all but kill it sometimes it really can and some of the idiots that you have to deal with uh with people just taking your photos and using them without even asking and then you know and then trying to get money out of people and the surf industry is tough you know it's like because everybody wants to be there doing it you know and so they go oh, we'll give you it'll give you good exposure and this and that you know um 
you just have to kind of do what you do because you love it and you know and diversify um try to try to bring a perspective um that is your perspective and is how you see things um of course we have we're inspired by other people and it's great to have those inspirations and people to look up to but um we're humans so we all have a unique individual perspective from our personal environments that we grew up on so bring that to your photography um and don't just make it all action 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 show the portraits you know shoot the portraits show your friends capture the emotional component of things um at the end of the day i really think it's the emotional component that that people that resonates with with your viewers you know you're going to have um you know your your a plus action which is always going to be awe inspiring stuff but i really believe that people want to identify with that emotional component um, and they want they want to travel to that place that you're at through your camera and through your images um, and that's always been my goal you know is like bringing my friends and my family to these places where i'm at that they can't go to which and share and sharing that you know and that's the photojournalistic side of me too you know, but it's an artistic journalistic side of me that, you know, I want to show them what I see. Um, so it's, it really kind of comes down to bringing your perspective, look at different ways that you can do it. I'm not saying go shoot weddings because that's like, was boring, boringest thing ever for me to go do that. There's, you can go and chase money with photography and if, and if it works for you, great. Um, but I have to do it still within my passion realm but the people the places uh there's a lot of avenues within that that you can diversify and make yourself more valuable to people in what you offer um even shooting video is a great talent to have along with that um writing stuff you know being like a one-man show where you're there and you can take a photo and then you can write like little stories about it for people that need it, you know, any kind of magazines or, or websites. Um, the more you can offer to people, the more you're, the more valuable you're gonna be. Um, and that's also, uh, yeah, it's just, I guess just kind of work with the people that you know in your network and, and show the world how you see the world. <laughs> Epic advice, Scott. Scott. So, so uh, prudent into young people, people of of all um, all ages involved in this in this uh, passion artistic process that is photography. Um, I know you got a family to get to right now. Um, I want to ask you one more question. Let's go uh, real deep. Well, what is your uh, meaning of life? Um. <sighs> Yeah, the meaning of life for me is to bring joy and happiness and education to people. Um, becoming a father um, really showed me the true meaning of love, love that I'd never experienced ever in this life. Um, and having the children is a sense of hope. And it's like bringing your best friend to your hometown and you just want to show them all the cool stuff of that, except when you're a dad you're just like i want to show you the world you know and the way i've seen the world and um you know i was 
the I was older when I had kids. I was 36 when I had my first daughter, and she's 16 now. Um, so I had kind of had a pretty, you know, full life at that point, and I was ready to do it. Um, so, but to, to me, I mean, at the most, at the most basic level, we're here as a species to propagate our species, you know. Um, and what that species becomes, you know, obviously it's pretty chaotic, but I try to shine uh, uh, somebody in the education movement. I think it's, it's cliche, but it is the hope of the future to teach the young kids um, growing up, you know, show them a better world and show them a positive side of it because we can get bogged down in the negative, uh, especially with what the kids have to deal with these days with the social networks, Instagram and everything, and this perfect world that they, all these people are portraying, which is just bullshit. And the kids get caught up in it and they think that they're worthless because of all these other people that are they're seeing on their device. I think it's a, I think it's a terrible, terrible thing like that. Um, you know, the, the, the web and the socials, they're a tool to be used. They're not like how to like, does, they're not about teaching you how to be who you are. That's for damn sure. Um, so, at the root of it, um, I think all we can do is be true to ourselves, find out what is true to us as an individual um, and how we can walk from day to day and look people in the eye and introduce yourself and make friends and say, hey, this is me, hi, I'm Scott, what's your name? Um, and know that I'm true to me and I'm a good person and I'm not, you know, I, I don't harbor any bad intentions against you. So I fit in and then people that identify with me then we're gonna become friends, right? The people that don't, hey, it's okay. It doesn't mean that I'm no good. You know, that's just, we don't, we don't connect like that. So um, I just think trying to be true to yourself like that and then pursuing what you love as best you can and creating positive energy out of that and bringing that positive energy to the world, you know? I mean, that's one of the greatest things about surfing, I think, is that, um, and snowboarding, um, they're selfish activities, right? Um, but I had a friend, Andrew Kidman, great Australian uh, filmmaker, artist, and we were talking about this one day and I was like, you know, God, it's so selfish. All we do is go out there and we just want to catch waves and get more waves than the other guy and this and that. I'm like, where's the good side of it? You know, and he was like, you know, you, you go in the water and you do your best to have a good session and then you come out onto land and you take that positive energy that you gained and then you spread that around to people, you know, and that's like really about the best thing we can do um, is just little bits of positivity within our own personal sphere of influence. And that sphere of influence can start with your family, your friends, your community, and then radiate out from there. Um, I don't think it's humanly feasible for any human to try to tackle the world's problems and be like, I'm going to fix everything on this massive scale. It's, we start here on our own doorstep and that's where we have our influence and we, and we go from there. Um, and I just think it's a great way to live your life. Um, don't try to screw other people over. Um, realize we all have good days and bad days. You know, when you're having your bad days, maybe you just need a little break and you just need to take your time away from people and it's okay. You know, we all can't be perfect all the time, um, but it's okay to, to take that break and not kick yourself for being negative and being down 
um, just accept that that's part of the ebb and flow of being a human. You know, we're not computers, you know, we're not a straight line. And the artistic bunch, like we are, we have pretty big highs and lows. And you just got to not kick yourself in that, you know, don't fall, you know, I don't fall into drugs and alcohol as a crutch to like make yourself feel better. Cause that's a long, dark road that just gets darker the more you go <laughs> into it, you know? Um, so um, at the end of the day, I think it's all about love, really, you know, feeling the love, feeling the universal love, feeling the love from people, giving out the love you can. Um, and when you can't just rest. <laughs> So incredibly well said, man. This entire interview, I've just been getting so so much inspiration from you, and um, t hearing about your your life and how you how you see the world has just been a, a, an incredible experience for me personally. And I know for those watching, um, will all will whoever listens to this in the future will also feel the same way. So uh, with that said, thank you so incredibly much for your valuable time today on the North Shore. And um, cheers, my man, like, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's really nice for me to be, to even be with you on this and, you know, have you asked me, it's an honor for sure. Just doing what I do. You're on the other side of the, you know, other side of the world practically at this point. To be able to communicate like this and just share these little ideas and, you know, I hope that I can inspire people that are trying to find their their path. You know, I'm 52 years old now and it's taken me a life to get to where I am. And it's not over yet. You know, like the kids think that we're all adults, you know, but dude, it's our first time through this whole crazy show anyway. So it's like we're all just figuring it out, you know, and if anything I can keep from what I've learned through my trials and tribulations and and if somebody can gain something from that and get some stoke and passion to go after their dreams, then Hey man, that's what it's all about. I get it from other people. And if I can take that and give that to somebody else, then it just all keeps going. So um, thank you so much from the land of Aloha in Hawaii. Um, positive vibes to all of you out there and just follow your dreams and stay on your path because this is your life and you got one life to live. Uh, be positive and spread the good vibes. And, and thank you for, for putting up with my family in the background. I'm trying to do this uh, multitasking thing and not, uh, <laughs> not, not let, let the oh, yeah. you back. For those of you listening on Apple Podcasts, um, that's uh, son Augustus in the background. He's two years old. And I, I think we've, uh, we've reached our 60-minute limit with the young fella. So, um, All right. Yeah. Scott, I, I have, um, I'm, I'm really happy we've uh, been able to meet. And I, I, I'm, I hope uh, we can meet in person someday. And um, I'll, I'm definitely going to stay in contact with you uh, if that's all right with, with you. Yeah, I'll be back in the uh, New England for the hurricane season next year. I religiously jam back there when we get some big swell coming up the East Coast, go visit all my family and stuff. It's still back there. So we're in the hood. Let's stay in touch and love to uh, throw some high fives in person. Sick. Uh, last, last question. P.S. What, what's your spot in uh, New England? What, what's your number one spot? Give a shout out. Uh, the whole crew down in Narragansett, Rhode Island, going all the way back to the days of the watershed with Peter Pan and Dave Levy, the Maletta brothers, uh, just the whole crew back there, Bobby Kelly, Ed Logi, rest in peace. Uh, the whole crew guys are dear in my heart. I love going back there and I always appreciate going back there and feeling the love that uh, you guys give me. 
when I come home and these days I get to bring my daughters back with me because they're into surfing now and we surf back there and we love it, you know, get back there for some waves and some good old New England clam cakes and iced coffee, right? So shout out to all the homies back there. So sick, so sick. Well, y'all, that's a wrap. Episode 10, speaking from water with the legendary Scott Sullivan, Sullivan himself. And um, please smash up the likes, uh, push, uh, subscribe, all those things if you like. And um, much respect to everyone out there. And um, that's a wrap. Scott, I'll uh, get like, I got to get it together.